Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to New Books in History, a podcast channel for the New Books Network. My name is Rosemary Palenzuela Vicente, and today I'm meeting with Dr. Rachel Henson to talk about her first book, Laboring for the State, Women, Family, and Work in Revolutionary Cuba, 1959 to 1971. The book was published in 2019 as part of the Cambridge Latin American Studies series by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Henson is the director of Creating Connections Consortium, otherwise known as C3, an initiative to promote equity and inclusion in higher education. Dr. Henson's book examines the ways in which the Cuban revolutionary government engaged in social engineering to redefine the nuclear family and organized citizens to serve the state. Anyone interested in learning about gender, labor, law, or the Cuban revolution more broadly will benefit from reading her book. Dr. Henson, welcome to the channel. It's wonderful to have you. Thanks for having me, Rosemary. Awesome. Um, before we start kind of going through the breakdown of your book, I wanted to ask like, a couple of background questions and questions about methodology. Um, the first question I wanted to ask, could you talk a bit about how you landed on this project and what made you want to become a Cubanist? Yeah, so I want to spend, I do want to spend a couple sentences here talking about my positionality because it's important. I was born in the U.S., uh, to an Anglo family in 1982, um, which was the second year of Ronald Reagan's presidency. I was raised in a conservative, evangelical, working class family. And for much of my childhood, um, my, my four siblings and I, we didn't have a television. And the books I could read and the music I could listen to was also pretty circumscribed. And so our family's values were very much informed by Focus on the Family, a fundamentalist Christian organization led by James Dobson. And as the name indicates, Focus on the Family was committed to a very specific blueprint of the ideal Christian family, one in which the authority of men and the church was paramount. And so much of my adolescence and early early adulthood was about finding more expansive alternatives to this heterosexual, patriarchal, and white supremacist ideal advanced by the by the evangelical church. And so I've given you this rather lengthy overview of my personal background because, because well, scholarly projects are always personal, even right. if it's not in obvious ways. Um, so I first, but with regard to Cuba, I first started studying Cuba as a research assistant for Lorraine Bardavolo at the University of Kansas. Um, and this research eventually resulted in her book, Women in the Cuban Insurrection, which for listeners that haven't read that book, I do encourage you all to reach out and check it out. Um, and so in my early research for Bardavolo, and then later in my own research, it became apparent to me how very important gender roles and normative sexuality were to early revolutionary leadership. And my intimate knowledge of the discursive construction of gender and the family in the evangelical U.S. clearly paved the way for my research on family and revolutionary Cuba. Of course, 
you know, the more research I did and the more participants I interviewed, I became increasingly radicalized. And by that, I mean, I came to see the limitations of the global left, specifically how our continued veneration of the Cuban revolution in academic spaces limits the opportunity for nuance, especially when considering the multifarious experiences of Cubans who experience both joy and suffering, which we have to acknowledge as hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's a really important topic to talk about. Um, and so how did the idea of this particular book originate? And how do you think it changed? I'm assuming it came out of like a dissertation project. How do you think it changed from dissertation to monograph? Yeah. And so I, because I spent so much time talking about your earlier question, I won't go into too much depth on this, but but this is certainly as with at, as many scholarly monographs and first books, this came out of my dissertation. Um, I found it helpful to continue writing this and to finish writing this from outside of academia. I had already decided not to continue as an academic by the time I was writing the sort of final few drafts of the book. And it really allowed me to have a more expansive conversation with the people that I was interacting with in a historiographical way, just because I felt like I wasn't hampered by some of the parameters that academia puts on us. Um, but in one specific way that my, my project evolved from dissert- dissertation to monograph is that in the dissertation, I didn't yet realize that the four programs I study all shared the same aim of control over women's labor, be it procreative labor, domestic labor, paid labor. And for example, I hadn't yet grasped how even the rumored Wanakabibe's work camp where men were placed to quote unquote, learn how to appropriately labor, was very much about creating male heads of household who labored appropriately, just as it was about supplanting female economic heads of household, which is an argument I make in the book. Right. And um, really quickly, before we before we continue going down through like the breakdown of your book, um, do you mind talking a little bit about the challenges in writing a book on revolutionary Cuba? What were your experiences kind of navigating the politics of the island and, you know, as well, the archive? Great. So, Rosemary, as you well know, writing about revolutionary Cuba is challenging for a number of reasons. Um, travel to Cuba is not travel to Cuba is not always an option for researchers, especially now. Um, archival access to material produced after 1958 is limited, um, and as scholars, we're also constrained by the assumption that we must be for or against the revolution. And even 60 years later, after you know, the 26th of July movement came to power, scholars outside of Cuba still face accusations of, of ideological diversionism by our colleagues for challenging the Cuban government's master narrative of how things happened. And so as a white Anglo woman, not of Cuban descent, I had differing levels of institutional access and perhaps unsurprisingly experienced privilege in the research process. Like any scholar from outside of Cuba, to access Cuban archives or libraries, I needed to cultivate or cultivate a relationship with a Cuban institution and then obtain from them a letter of introduction to the Jose Martin National Library, for example. And then when I arrived to this and other locations, I cultivated additional relationships and sometimes friendships with the employees and other researchers there. And so as part of this process, I was encouraged to bring gifts of chocolate or coffee to express my gratitude for these folks' labor, as well as for the fact that that I was we were we were in a system of in which I had a lot more economic privilege, right? And so these relationships were essential to navigating the often unwritten bureaucratic rules in these institutions. So at the Institute of Literature and Linguistics in Havana, for example, I was once told to not plug in my laptop because it would use up electricity. 
And so to continue using my computer in this space, I needed to cultivate an ally who would have my back and allow me to plug in my computer. And then at the same time, I was also pretty selective about which parts of my project and my argument that I shared with people in positions of authority. So when researching the campaign against prostitution, for example, uh, which I, I did in various places, including the 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 archive, the archive and the library for the Federation of Cuban Women, I didn't mention that I was questioning the official interpretation of the event as something universally positive. With regard to oral histories in particular, I sometimes got the impression that, impression that some people were more willing to talk to me because they knew that if I published anything from my research, it would be in English and therefore give them a layer of protection from Cuban government authorities. At the same time, my position as a U.S. person also made me suspect, of course. And so in an interview with, with a couple in Huatao, the location of the America Libre Re-Education Center for Prostitutes, it took several hours for, for the husband in particular to open up to me due to his previous employment. I'm not going to mention his previous employment, but it very much informed his view of me and me coming into his and his wife's home. Um, so, so I guess to summarize, I would say that doing research in Cuba, for me at least, has very much been about cultivating relationships and engaging with the people I met with, with empathy and vulnerability. Yes. Um, I was going to say you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it's something that's very important for um, scholars of Cuba to really um, talk about a little bit more openly is those challenges of the archive and what you should expect, because it is very different to do research in Cuba than other places. And for example, Latin America, and those expectations of exactly what you just mentioned, you know, like that you have to, you're expected to give gifts or you're expected to, um, compensate someone in some way, you know, or another for access to the archive is very important because again, it's something that's so almost unique to Cuba that um, people don't necessarily think about when they, when they want to kind of study the island and study the politics. So thank you for, um, for talking about that. I know it's very important. So to begin the kind of breakdown of your book, obviously your book is uh, broken down into an introduction, four chapters and an epilogue. And so to kind of start with the introduction, I wanted to quickly talk about, um, you reference how sexual and geographic monogamy were used as mechanisms of state control throughout the first decade following the triumph of the Cuban Revolution. Could you, talk, could you talk a little bit about what that means and like the theoretical frameworks that you implemented in your analysis? Sure. So although it's not something I highlight in my book, queer theory, theory clearly has an influence on this project insofar as I'm questioning the normalization of the heterosexual monogamous nuclear family with a male economic head of household and underscoring how much effort must be exerted by outside forces to standardize, standardize the ideal family form. And so in this book, as you mentioned, I explore four state programs aimed at cultivating this ideal family, which I refer to as the new family, beginning in 1959 and continuing through 1971. And I see these projects very much as an example of state formation or the state creating a more centralized government with increased knowledge about citizens who previously existed at the margins. And so for this reason, I found, of course, Foucault's concept of biopolitics to be a useful way for understanding how early revolutionary leadership oversaw and regulated human life processes such as birth, marriage, sexual intercourse. And specifically with regard to Cuban history, I mobilized Jose Quiroga and Lillian Guerra's medical, me, med, excuse me, metaphorical framework of the palimpsest. So just to define this term, a palimpsest is a text that has been written over 
partially or completely erased to make room for another text. And I was grateful for this framework because it helped me reckon with evidence that I was discovering that ran counter to the master narrative of the Cuban revolution, the master narrative created and cultivated by the Cuban government. And to give you an example of this, in September of 1977, on the anniversary of the the CDRs, the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution, Fidel gave his speech as he often did. And he proclaimed that with the revolution, prostitution became a crime. So in 1959. And with this announcement, he ostensibly sought to prevent additional women from becoming prostitutes, but he conveniently ignored with this statement the entire anti-prostitution campaign and the first few years when prostitutas received sympathy, support, rehabilitation from government activists. So we see in examples like this, the importance of using early revolutionary pronouncements as evidence against some more recent claims that we're hearing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I think uh, Guerra's use of that framework really kind of revolutionized the state of the field because that's that was a really helpful framework for a lot of people working on race and other kinds of marginalized topics. Um, so, so yeah, definitely. I can, I can see how that influenced your work and how that influenced how you kind of structured your argument in your introduction. So to talk about your, fir- your, your chapters, your first chapter on birth control, abortion, and women's reproductive and physical labor tackles the different ways that the revolutionary government addressed issues surrounding women's fertility, birth rates, infant mortality, and how they oscillated back and forth in their approach towards criminalizing or legalizing abortion and birth control. Could you tell us a bit more about how the government uh, problematized women's sexuality and family planning? Especially, I was very struck by your description of the zipper ring which I think was one of like the, the standout moments of the book um, and the emphasis that revolutionary officials and middle-class physicians place on improving maternal health care. Yeah, so this chapter, this first chapter explores the gradual introduction of family planning to Cuban women, as you described, highlighting the revolution's centralization of medical and state authority, again, a part of state formation, right? As well as its rejection of medical plurality such as the expertise of midwives, the expertise of santeros, santeria priests. And of course, I'm not going to re- I'm not going to wholesale reject community-based primary care, right? Because that's unquestionably beneficial to the Cuban population as a whole, particularly for the many Cubans who who had inadequate medical care prior to 59. But this paternalistic approach to public health wasn't universally pro- positive. And so by prioritizing the community over the individual, This new approach allowed physicians to serve as the official arbiters of women's reproductive health. And so even though the new government afforded medical assistance to rural Cubans a little more than one month after taking power in 59, this and other public health models failed to include access to abortion, which then fueled rumors as early as 1961 that the government had criminalized the procedures. And it's interesting, and, and I think we'll talk about rumors later, but Revolutionary leadership at the time never responded to these popular rumors and instead chose to emphasize the benefits of hospital births and the ideological dangers of birth control. And evidence suggests, I show, that that poor, working-class Black and, and mulata women, both urban and rural, were specific targets of this early effort to oversee women's biological reproduction. And I'm just going to go into a brief example of how I used Cuba's racialized geography to make this suggestion. And so by 1965, following an unexpected baby boom, the Ministry of Public Health, MinSAP, began to provide women with some medical options for controlling reproduction. 
like you said, the anillo or the zipper ring, um, which had, had origins in Chile. And the first women to receive these devices lived in Havana Solares or shanty towns, as well as eastern cities such as Manzanillo, Santiago, Guantanamo. And all, all of these places were locations with high concentrations of Afro-Cubans. Dr. Orlando Rigo Ricardo, who participated in these procedures in medical school, he wrote about them later um, in the Cuban Journal of Public Health. And so this is where I, I see his sort of almost memoir-like narrative of his experience. But in as he's describing these initial IUD insertions, that, because that's what the zipper ring is, he made no reference to the race of these patients, which was very typical, right, of um, the period, even after 1961, right, when no mention is made of race, is of race in, in official conversations, because of course, there was no racism, or so Fidel said, right? And so, of course, though, even though he doesn't mention race, Cubans reading the article would quickly recognize that the places he described were largely populated by blacks and mulatos. So we see in this way how healthcare became a form of power that could be both beneficial and harmful to citizens. And I just want to conclude with, with a contemporary a contemporary example of, of healthcare as a technology of power. Um, and we see that in the detention of Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara, right? A critical artist and dissident who was just released yesterday after spending a month isolated in a Havana, Havana hospital, right? So and the, this was done so authorities could prevent him from continuing his hunger strike. And so this is an, another example of biopower at work, the state deciding when someone can live or die. Absolutely. That was a great example, actually. I was thinking about that actually earlier when I was reading about it. Um and, you know, I think this, this chapter did a very good job of kind of um, reconstructing this history in so many ways because there is so much silence about race in, in like the Cuban revolutionary, you know, discursive archive. And so it's so difficult to kind of get at some of these things. And you did a really good job of um, kind of d- discussing race without necessarily, um, you know, making it such a such a highlighted aspect of your of your argument. I think you did an excellent job with that. And so the the next thing I wanted to talk about is your second chapter, where um, I, I particularly like this chapter because you bring up a lot of legal statutes that, you know, anybody who's not a Cuban historian or even not a Cuban historian who really focuses on law will really not necessarily be too familiar with. And so um, you do a beautiful job of tracing like the evolving legal statutes and government reforms that are aimed to transform or reconfigure the traditional Cuban family. In what ways did the, gov- the Cuban revolutionary government accomplish this? What were these kinds of um, programs, for example, um, that the revolutionary government initiated or incentives? Um, and how did family life, if you can talk a little bit about how did family life differ before and after the Cuban revolution? Yeah, Thank you for this question, because this is a this is a chapter that particularly evolved quite a bit from my dissertation. And I'll talk about that briefly. But on some level, the new ideal revolutionary family really it for those scholars of Cuba, those observers of Cuba will see that in some ways it reproduced the ideal Christian Catholic bourgeois family in both of these ideals, the new family under the revolution the ideal Catholic family, there's a male head of household, women are primarily responsible for the home, women also have to relinquish control over their reproduction to an outside authority. And at the same time, the economic and moral demands of the revolution required this prior ideal family to flex and change. Women had to relinquish reproductive autonomy to the state, which bypassed the church. 
Church weddings came to be seen as suspects, and wedding palaces replaced churches as the institution in which to marry. And the jobs which men were permitted to have changed, especially after the Revolutionary Offensive of 1968, which nationalized nearly 56,000 private businesses and, and said basically overnight, from one day to the next, that, that private businesses were, were akin to being chulos or, or taking advantage of the labor of others. And so we might view the bourgeois Christian family as the inspiration or the foundation for the new family, but it very much did emerge out of the specific demands of the revolution. And so you're right about the, the legal statutes because that I found that to be really fascinating as I was discovering these, again, like I said, really after the dissertation was complete. And and so for my dissertation, I relied primarily on periodicals to discuss the Operation Matrimony campaign to get campesinos or rural Cubans legally married with an emphasis on the provinces of Las Villas and Matanzas. But as I was doing research for the book manuscript, I found myself turning again and again to the Gaceta Oficial, Cuba's legal gazette where laws and decrees are published. And, and I realized how much of a legal precedent there was for this campaign, which centered not only on the country's whitest provinces, again, thinking about Cuba's racial geography, and this is also where counter-revolutionaries were most active until 65, but also these legal, these legal statutes, decrees, and laws really also increasingly denied authority to judges in favor of no- notaries who operated under the, the auspices of the Ministry of Justice. So we see how these, these laws and this operation are really serving multiple purposes, right? Circumscribing the, the actions of counter-revolutionaries in specific provinces, getting notaries to take power from judges, and then really placing that under the central authority of the Ministry of Justice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I said, this is, I think, one of the, the more interesting ones because they are such, um, they're so evolving and a lot of them even kind of um, retreat back to earlier laws or just, you know, like the, the it's such a complicated legal history that can be done there that you did like a really beautiful job of kind of making very plainly um, stated to, to, to the readers because it, it could be very confusing and, you know, the reader could get lost in like just following these different laws. And so I think you did a great job with that. Um, and so moving on to your third chapter, um, this chapter I know um, you've published in other forms, if I'm not mistaken, it was like an article, um, yeah. but it's about the rehabilitation of prostitutes. And this, I think, is like also one of like more fascinating aspects of your book, where you kind of talk about the successful, you know, quote unquote, successful campaign to rehabilitate prostitutes, which became like a significant dimension of the revolutionary government's historical narrative within the first decade of the revolution. And so like, I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about like who the targets of this campaign were, and what types of strategies the revolutionary reformers employed to carry out this project. And like more broadly, just talking about why were prostitutes deemed such a significant problem that the revolutionary government needed to address so urgently? Yeah, thank you. And, and yes, absolutely. This uh, earlier version of this came out in the Journal of, of Sexuality. So this revolutionary campaign against female prostitutes, right, because this really wasn't targeted at male prostitutes who were classified, basically thrown into the category of gay, and they were they were penalized in other ways. Um, but the, this campaign against prostitution, I, I do need to say that it built on a long history of attempts to regulate and then eradicate prostitution. Um, for those of us, for those folks interested in this, Tiffany Scipio writes about this in her book on prostitution in Cuba in the period from 1840 to 1920. 
And she writes that during this period, the body of the Cuban prostitute was itself a shifting site of meeting where definitions of modernity and nationhood were repeatedly tested and contested. And I found this also to be true for the period I studied, 59 and forward. And I show that revolutionary leadership later saw prostitution also as part of a the neocolonial ambiance of tourism through which hundreds of thousands of tourists travel to Cuba each year, enjoying easy access to alcohol, drugs, gambling, and sex. So the initial impulse to re-educate rather than incarcerate alleged prostitutes, and that's key, alleged prostitutes, right, reflected a desire to, to maintain elite gender norms and and quote unquote, protect women from men who would supposedly exploit them. So it's this very paternalistic approach, at least initially. And organizers in this campaign initially saw the prostitutes as victims of capitalism, right? They're choosing this because they don't have any other economic opportunities, right? But in my chapter on this campaign, I, I try to complicate the term prostitute or prostituta as, as reformers are not peeking through holes and walls to confirm that money and sex for sure, are being exchanged, right? It's not like there's a stakeout happening. In practice, revolutionary activists just appear to have identified women as prostitutes if they met two criteria. They appeared to be sexually available, right? What does that mean? Were they dressed too sexy? Were they showing too much skin? And if they were also unaccompanied by Cuban husbands or boyfriends, right? So if they were alone, if they were with a tourist, if they were with someone that looked like a tourist. And so as Emir Valle argues for subsequent decades, it was the appearance, not the reality of transactional, transactional sex that was the most incriminating. Um, and so I want to talk briefly, too, about um, race here, because, again, it's sort of unspoken, but still very salient in the campaign. Activists, of course, for the reasons I outlined earlier, made no reference to race and race in their quest to restructure Cuban prostitution. But they still adopted the early 20th century rhetoric of cultural evolutionism, which based sexual pronouncements on, on psychological or cultural criteria. So, for example, in, in observations by Chilean journalist Dario Carmona, who visited the Camaway Center for Social Rehabilitation in 1962, another prostitute rehabilitation center, he observed, quote, that many residents don't wear makeup and dress simply as if they don't want to call attention. One passes by, her heels clicking loudly. She swings her hips, but there are few who retain the custom, end quote. So according to Carmona's observation, successful rehabilitation implied austerity, physical restraint, and other characteristics that we know are associated with elite Eurocentric forms of expression. So by adopting a broad and flexible term of prostituta, anti-prostitution reformers really targeted for reform the behavior of all Cuban women, which I argue was used to restrict women from using sexual labor to accumulate capital for themselves and to support the casual labor of men. And to what extent do you think uh, denunciations played a role in these identifications of, you know, prostitutes? For sure. I mean, I, I am... I'm waiting for a rigorous study of CDRs in particular, in particular, right? Because we know the power of of, of particularly presidents of of the the committees for the defense of the revolution being able to say, right, this person isn't where they are, should be or doing what they should be, right? We know um, 
Bandiera was arrested in the night of the three Ps and supposedly because his neighbor wanted to get access to his house after he was arrested to take that over, right? So we know that accusations very much played a part. I, it's just sometimes hard to get clear data on that, but, but I think the more research we do on the CDRs, I think that will be coming out more and more. Right. Yeah. And I think, like I said, like, I think it's a, it's a fascinating chapter because, you know, someone who's, who's familiar with Cuban history knows that like prostitution became like another very important topic in the 1990s during the special period. And the, the, the types of people, the types of women who would be targeted as prostitutes or jineteras, um, change a lot in the, w- the ways that they're kind of represented and the ways that they're kind of assimilated and not assimilated in so many ways is, is so very interesting in the 90s and you're seeing kind of like the roots of this so so that particular chapter was very um useful in terms of talking about like the, the origins of what women and you know a lot of men obviously were going through in the mm-hmm. 1990s um so to kind of move forward a little bit and talk about um Chapter four, I was really struck by your treatment of the night of the three Ps, which is something that I had no idea about. Um, And so I kind of like was, you know, scanning through the book and I was kind of fangirling a little bit because I didn't really like this was just something that was completely new to me and I didn't really know too much about it. So I was I was really struck by it. Could you describe for the listeners what the event slash moment was and how it connects to the revolutionary government's emphasis on redefining masculinity, labor and just gender dynamics within the household more broadly? Absolutely. And Rosemary, you, you are not alone, right? The Night of the Three Ps, the La Noche de las Tres Ps is not a well-known event in Cuba or in scholarly in revolutionary scholarship, right? For those who even know about it or have heard about it, the details are still fuzzy. And I'm going to go into detail too about how the details are still fuzzy for me, right? So I, I am doing my best to uncover data about this, but it's still um, messy. So those who know about the Night of the Three Ps, though, generally remember it for its repression of homosexuals, specifically, like I said, the arrest of um, acclaimed dramatist Pinero, Virgilio Pinera, um, who was also a columnist for the periodical revolution. So in the book, I write that the Night of the Three Ps occurred in October 1961 in Havana and some surrounding towns as ordered by Fidel and Ramiro Valdez, who was the head of the special police or the G2. And agents arrested thousands of people. And and the name, the Night of the Three Ps, right, suggests that it was one night and that only three people were targeted for arrest. And the three Ps are prostitutas, pederastas, or pájaros, and proxinetas, which these are terms traditionally commonly translated by English language scholars as prostitutes, homosexuals, or faggots, and pimps. But in fact, the event transcended more than one night. And as Carlos Franchi remarked in his 1985 memoir, those detained in this raid really encompassed a much more diverse group, including vagrants, to quote him, suspicious types, intellectuals, artists, Catholics, Protestants, and practitioners of voodoo, end quote. And so in this chapter, I argue that the erroneous framing of the Night of the Three Ps conceals a much longer and broader campaign by the state to suppress individuals who were deemed for any reason to be a threat to the revolution. So again, like the the campaign against prostitution, a really broad definition about, about how we use that term and who was arrested and who gets to decide, right? And so I specifically focus in this chapter on proxinetas or pimps. And like the campaigns examined in other chapters of the book, The revolutionary program against pimps, or more precisely men not employed to the satisfaction of the government, it was part of a broader attempt over the first 
the revolution's first decade of power to enhance its control over Cuban bodies and labor. Now, like I said, I want to add an amendment to this chapter because a couple months ago, I was reading Ted Henkin's interview with Anna Weltfort, um, a German-born U.S. citizen who lived in Havana from 1962 to 1972. And for those who want to check it out, it's published in No Country magazine. And I was excited to see Veltfort mention the Night of the Three Ps and how it targeted people outside the categories of, you know, the traditional understood categories of, of gays, prostitutes, and pimps. But I was surprised to see that she disagreed with Carlos Frankie on the date of the event. She describes it as happening in October 1962, not October 1961, on the eve of the nuclear crisis between the U.S. and Cuba. And so as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, what does this mean for my book? If the night of the three Ps did indeed occur in 62 versus 61. And on one level, right, it doesn't change my argument as the arrest and repression happens, just as I described. But at the same time, if this event did happen in 62, I would no longer argue that the night of the three Ps anticipated repression to come, right? And I would no longer describe the events, the arrests as universally extra legal, because in December 1961, which I talk about in this chapter two, there was a passage of Law 993, which facilitated the arrest of any man not employed to the satisfaction of the state. So my potential error about the date of this event really just highlights the scarcity of evidence that we're working with and the need for really for additional research on the 1960s. Yeah, and that's really fascinating how um, how that could actually like affect your broader argument so 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 deeply, right? Um, and yeah. how like it would really just affect the way that you would structure your book. It's, it's so interesting to kind of talk to historians and and see how you know that one you know either like misguided, misquoted, or like wrongly archived you know event or piece of evidence can really kind of dictate not only could it frame a project but it also kind of like derail a project in so many ways. Totally. And so that was, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit more? Because I feel like this chapter, um, it, it was, I almost kind of divided it into two sections. That first section really just talking about the night of three Ps. And then the second section really just talking a little bit more broadly about like labor and like gender dynamics in the household. Can you talk a little bit more about that aspect of the chapter? Yeah. So the, the second half of the chapter talks a lot more about the rumored Juanacabibe's labor camp. And so the question remains, did this Juanacabibe's labor camp exist? Um, it's one of those rumors that circulated widely that everyone talked about. People would jokingly threaten friends or children. If you don't do your job well or you don't do this chore, you're going to end up, um, you know, sowing eucalyptus on the Juanacabibe's Peninsula, which is the, the peninsula on the, on the far west in Pinar del Rio. And so this... This argument, there's basically an argument that just happens for a couple of years and fades out in 1965. It's this argument that no such labor camp exists. No such labor camp exists to put men who are not laboring in jobs appropriately. Cuban civilians say, absolutely, it does exist. But regardless, right, it gets into debates about who's telling the real history. But, But I make the argument that for people who are sent to labor camps, whether it is the Juanacabue's labor camp or other labor camps that certainly did exist, a lot of the men were sent there in order to be, quote, taught how to work. A lot of this work that they were, quote, taught how to do was agricultural labor. Um, And they were, this was ostensibly not punishment, although the people placed there would argue differently, right? But this was an attempt to say, if you don't labor in jobs that are full-time, that are, um, 
that you're reporting to an official um, boss who reports to the state, um, then you can be sent to these places for ostensibly rehabilitation. Other people would argue that it's punishment. And then this ties to my broader argument of, of really saying if, if how interesting that women who are sex workers, right? Women who are prostitutes are being pulled away from their work and sent home and said, care for your children. And men who are maybe doing work that is on the side, maybe doing work that's illegal, maybe doing work that's part-time, that they said that you need to be doing different types of work. And particularly if you're being supported, say, by a prostitute, that's even worse, right? Because you are allowing a woman to support you and we need to train you in appropriate labor under this new government. Right. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes absolute sense. Thank you for that. Um, so this was, this was a question like, you know, when, when we talked about the questions, like I mentioned, this would be an extra question if we had the time, which we, we do. Um, I was really struck by like the gravity that you place on examining the role of rumor, um, both within like Cuban official and civil society. So if you could talk a little bit about how rumors and denunciations, I know we talked about that a little bit earlier, um, shape the day-to-day experiences of ordinary Cubans and in particular women during this first decade. Yeah, and uh, we've been, we've kept referring back to, to bolas or rumors in this conversation. And, and me talking about rumors and their importance is certainly not new, right? As historians, we know that rumors threaten power structures because they introduce ambiguity, uncertainty. Rumors threaten leaders' monopoly over what is true. And so about the Caribbean in general, we can look to Lauren Lauren Derby's um, article where she writes that unsanctioned speech really gets us closer to everyday experiences, to how events unfold on the ground. And again, returning to Lillian Guerra, as who, as you can tell, uh, whose work has very much informed this project, she writes that in Cuba, for ordinary people, rumors. So, as Lillian writes, Lillian, Lillian Guerra writes about Cuba, for ordinary people, rumors can really also be an alternative news network. And so, she's written about the early years of the, years of the revolution when rumors were a form of contestation that challenged and introduced alternatives to the reality advanced by the state. And so in my own research, I found that rumors emerged in relation, relation to each of the programs I, I explored. And I take these rumors seriously. Not, not that I, I don't mean, of course, that I accept all rumors as true, but I see rumors sometimes as evidence of citizens' counter narrative to the narratives disseminated by the state, as evidence of people's concerns or fear about a potential event. So, for example, in 1961, we see rumors emerge that the government is going to criminalize abortion. Um, And we see in 1963 that people were whispering that weddings would be outlawed. And in Chapter 4, which we just talked about, right, we see the rumored Juanacabibe's forced labor camp emerge from the repeated tension I found between Fidel and Che saying, no such labor camp exists. And ordinary Cubans saying, yes, it does. And so how do, how do we get at this when we're doing research? And one way to get it is, is at least in, in the materials I was looking at, authorities felt obligated to respond to these rumors, right? They felt obligated to say, I don't know why you're saying weddings are going to be outlawed. They're fine, right? Why are you so ridiculous, right? The title of the Noticias de Hoy piece that I found was... Um, absurd rumors, 
right? So they, so we see how in some cases we can get really even additional information based on authorities responding to these rumors. Yeah, which is really interesting because I feel like um, you you obviously reference also like the the rumors about um, Cuban children, which ultimately led to uh, Operación Pedro Pan and and the kind of Cuban exit the exodus of Cuban children, which I found really interesting as well. So yeah, like it's 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 very clear that rumors and obviously like with the with the presence of the CDR rumors and denunciations and things of that nature would be a huge part of understanding like really everyday experiences of ordinary Cubans and obviously like this very kind of um, important decade of the Cuban revolution where it's so much about legitimation, so much about um, uh, kind of creating like this, or like, you know, reassuring state control. So I thought that was really fascinating. And so um, really quickly, uh, we've discussed obviously like the four primary social campaigns that officials pursued in the first decade of the revolution. In your epilogue, you take the time to question these legacies, which I found really, really fun to read, actually, um, and to kind of see how, obviously, you're in this very specific historical moment, but you're looking further, you're looking past, you're looking back as well. And so these kinds of reflections were really, really fascinating to follow in your epilogue. And so can you kind of um, talk about what those legacies are and how... Um, how you would say Cubans since have continued to kind of practice agency and resist conforming to revolutionary visions. Absolutely. And so the interesting thing about this epilogue is that in some ways it was also the beginning of my project because the project sort of partially emerged out of me really seeing family forms and, and individuals labor on the ground in Cuba today and really seeing how different they were from this ideal that I, I even early on found remnants of. And so really, and then trying to figure out where did this come from? Why did this happen? So we know that in Cuba today, common law unions are the norm. Since 1979, abortions have been legal. Um, hundreds of thousands of people today participate in micro enterprise, both legal and extra legal. And popular and even academic discourses a historically, I argue, suggests that these are the outcomes of a socialist revolution, the result of government effort, efforts to challenge the traditional family and modes of labor that now this is all came about because, you know, the revolution got rid of the Catholic Church. But like I said, even preliminary research on my dissertation caused me to question some of these contemporary assumptions. And just to give an example, many of the Cubans I interviewed were really excited to talk about their weddings at marriage palaces or the papelitos they received that functioned a bit like libretas to give them access to additional store items to purchase. And their stories, these stories in particular, propelled me to see formal marriage as a mechanism of the state to create specific family forms which would then serve the revolution. And this is, of course, a more conservative view of the Cuban revolution than many leftists would prefer to see. Um, And so absolutely, the Cuban family we see today is not the new family envisioned by early revolutionary leadership. But at the same time, the ideal, right, the idealization of the new family persists. For example, I'm I'm thinking of Elise Andaya in her study of reproduction in post-Soviet Cuba, Um, She's an anthropologist, and she underscores how revolutionary leadership and medical practitioners regard abortion, even though it's legal, they regard it as evidence of female irresponsibility and social backwardness. And for the past 20 years, like you said, beginning in the 90s, police have been again detaining and placing supposed jineteras and rehabilitation centers, and poor rural and Afro-Cuban women are the most vulnerable. 
And so in many ways, the family and labor forms we see today are very similar to those of Cuba pre-1959. So there is continuity. At the same time, these specific ways of laboring and forming family that we see today are also responses to the changes implemented by the by the new government. For example, in the 60s and 70s, it told women to rely on doctors, state doctors, and other state health professionals for their reproductive needs. And so this is very much what women continue to do today when they go and get an abortion instead of, say, using some sort of birth control or sort of medical birth control that like, like health officials would prefer. But but this is not exactly what health professionals had in mind, but it's very much people on the ground saying, well, you said you would take care of my health needs, right? So it's, and we see it also as a response to state actions. Yeah, and that's, and that's really fascinating too, because obviously um, anybody who has experience going to Cuba, like they, you, you see, you see the clinicas and the policlinicas and you see um, different kind of um, medical institutions that are, that are kind of meant to facilitate like women and like, you know, obviously like just Cuban citizens in general, but especially women's like needs, um, like reproductive needs and maternal needs. And so there, there is this kind of wider need to have women and just Cuban citizens like go directly to the state for their needs instead of like private doctors or midwives or, you know, rely on, um, you know, family remedies and things like that. There's exactly what you're saying. I think that kind of proves it, but it's, it's almost so difficult to kind of make those connections historically um, just based off of observations of being on the Island. And so I think that was, that was an excellent example for you to mention. And, and so, of course, to, I mean, to add, if you don't mind, if I add, Rosemary, we uh, this is also not to say that that the state government, you know, it really shouldn't be providing these things, right? Um, but it's also to complicate it and say, like, what are the attitudes of the health professionals when people go in for these procedures, right? Or also, how universally universally available are these health procedures if you can't go with a gift for your physician? Right. Because the reality is that it's, it's I mean, what so many Americans believe or North Americans or whatever, is that you could just go in and healthcare is universal, but it's much more complicated than that. Right. And in practice, it's the long lines. It's getting to the front of the line. It's getting to things on time. It's access to medication. Yeah. It's, it's so it's exactly what you're saying. It's so it's so very complicated, which, again, like just even studying medicine in Cuba is so very difficult. Um, and there's been relatively few works done on it, especially like within recent historiography. So I think that's that's a good example to mention. And so to kind of sum up, um, we, we've already just discussed the, the epilogue. So to kind of ask a couple of final questions, um, this one, I'm, I'm really curious to see uh, what your answer to this is. But if you were to write this book again, what would you do differently? Yeah, I, so I, I, I wanted this question is interesting to me because one, so one thing that surprised me as I was as the book's publication was coming close. Right. I found in addition to relief, right, because it's exhausting, I also felt a sense of loss, right, because this project had accompanied me for nine, 10 years. And it was always at my side, right? It's always in my computer, I can always open it up, and it's evolving. It's constantly evolving. Every time I learn something new, I can go in into Microsoft Word and adjust my ideas, my thoughts, get feedback. But then at some point, it stops evolving right? It's, I stopped being able to change it. And, and I don't know for other authors, but I, I'm growing and changing and my thoughts are changing too. So I, and this project begins, what the, since this project began, right? My DNA is the same, but my cells have totally regenerated, right? So, so I, I, it's, 
I totally think that I would approach things differently. And I'm going to just mention two brief things right today. And, and, and I, I would complicate my reliance on the sex gender binary, right? I already, of course, recognize in this book that sex assigned at birth and gender and the gender associated with sex, we know they're social constructs, not scientific realities. But I would have explored this further in the book, at least when it came to just thinking about my my evidence and how I gathered evidence, like I could have discussed how childbirth outside of hospitals and without official documentation, it would have allowed people more gender flexibility in terms of how they led their lives, right? They're not carrying around a piece of paper that definitively says when you were born, a doctor saw a penis and assumed you're male, right? Um, and so when registering their births as adults, which many did for the first time in Operation Family, they could have elected to put their preferred gender and not had to default to what a doctor or a midwife or a nurse says, you know, when the child is born. And so I have no evidence of this happening, right? I'm not saying that there's hidden evidence out there, but if I had opened my mind to this and other possibilities, what evidence might I have discovered? And then, you know, so I have one other thing, but, but, but that's one thing that's been on my mind with a book that has woman in its title, Right. Right. Yeah, no. And I can imagine, obviously, and also like the state of the field is very much changing. But obviously, like, you know, anyone who has gone through that process of writing a dissertation or writing a monograph would know that any, any, like, sometimes when you open your, your, your eyes too much, it can derail a project and you have deadlines, you have timelines, you have certain things that you kind of have to, um, go by and so like certain things aren't actually applicable, which usually like scholars tend to explore and like, you know, subsequent books, articles, and things like that. Um, Before I ask you, you know, like the question about like, what are you currently working on? Or what do you see yourself working on in the future? um, I do want to ask you just in terms of like your experiences working in the archive or the the types of sources that you came across, was there anything that surprised you? Anything that completely kind of um, derailed your assumptions? I know we talked a little bit about this already, but anything that just um, kind of strikes out at you, any kind of anecdote that you can share with us? I I think what surprised me was how I don't how successful the, the government's master narrative has been at at really at really promoting this erasure of memory and just in the fact that of the campaigns I study these programs I study the only one that's really remembered really universally is the campaign against prostitution, even if it's remembered in a way that's different from what I argue, right? But even even that, so 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 I guess people, it's hard, people have a harder time remembering or connecting the dots that, um, whether scholars or citizens, right, that there was a period when, a, when abortion seems to have been criminalized, right? Or when men were sent to the Wanakabibes labor camp, supposedly, according to anecdotes. But even with regard to the anti-prostitution campaign, when I went to Watao, where where I, I found that the America Libre Re-Education Center was, and I was talking with people in Watao, right? Like, which is not, I mean, the re-education center was just brief, it was just really a little bit outside of town. They would refer me to, right, the old, the oldest guy in town. And and he remembered what it was under Batista, right? It was, it was a school of sorts, right? But he didn't, because it was such a brief period of time that prostitutes were confined there, right? Just for a couple of years. And so that's a blip in people's memory of who exactly was there at a specific time. Um, or, or people have moved there recently, or people don't want to talk to me because, right, like I said, there was the guy who was in a, a more official position that talking to me seemed to be more dangerous, right? Who, who, why could he trust me? And so I guess to answer your question, I 
was surprised how very much a lot of these programs, not all, but had really been effaced from general memory. Um, and it's not just that they were not referenced in anniversary events, which we know is a, is a very Cuban way of remembering things. Anniversaries are really important, but also just how it had sort of been lost to, to even general memory of the population too. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really great, great point. Um, so are there any projects that you're currently working on or expect to explore in the future? Are you able to tell us? I am grateful you asked that, but to be honest, I'm still pretty burnt out. <laughs> to be honest, from working on the dissertation in the book, um, and since I'm an independent scholar, I'm under no obligation to immediately begin a second project. And so right. I'm cultivating other ways to live in alignment with my values. And since community care is one of my values, like I told you in, in an email, I recently became a certified sex educator. Right. Um, I'm doing life coaching and consulting for PhD students and junior faculty and and so that's clearly very different than the project that, that we've been talking about. But in some ways, my work now is not so different from my work as a scholar and a historian in the sense that I'm I'm interacting with people in meaningful and empowering ways that enable learning, including my own. And so living, I just, I want to conclude with this because although it's not specifically with regard to your question, it does have parallels because living my values also means amplifying the voices of activists, including critical artists in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we already talked about Luis Manuel Otero, but but one example of the example of this is the, the San Isidro movement, whose members advocate for justice and equality right. in the absence of political channels. And so we can't ignore their demands as well as the the repression they're facing at the hands of Cuban security forces. And so. For the folks listening to this podcast, I would just encourage you to not let your your nostalgia for the Cuban Revolution and all its accomplishments obscure your vision of, of what's happening on the ground right now. And I think that's a perfect way to to, to conclude our our talk today. I think that there's no better there's no following that there's no better note than that. Thank you so much for that. Um, okay, so Dr. Henson, thank you so much for chatting with me today about your book, your experiences as a researcher, and for the important work that you do within and without academia. Um, Laboring for the State is available for purchase via Cambridge University Press and major book retailers. Thank you to all the listeners joining in. My name is Rosemary Palenzuela Vicente, and until next time. Thank you.